Hello and welcome back to Line by Line where we don't frown on nitpicking. Nitpicking is rather the point. Two guests, three passages of literature and some very close attention being paid. And if you prefer a more elevated description of close reading than nitpicking, how about this from George Saunders' recent book A Swim in a Pond in the Rain in which he pays very close attention to some great Russian short stories. The part of the mind that reads a story is also the part that reads the world. It can deceive us, but it can also be trained to accuracy. It can fall into disuse and make us more susceptible to lazy, violent, materialistic forces, but it can also be urged back into life, transforming us into more active, curious, alert readers of reality. With us today to exercise their alertness are the novelist Linda Grant, who won the Orange Prize for her novel When I Lived in Modern Times, and whose most recent book is A Stranger City, and the writer and broadcaster Satnam Sanghera, author of The Boy with the Top Knot, and most recently Empire Land, a best-selling history of the ways in which imperialism has shaped Britain. Um, hi Satnam, hi Linda. Hello. Hi. Um, just a reminder before we start and hear the first extract, that if you want to read the extracts we're discussing rather than just listening to them, you can find them on linebyline.substack.com and you can subscribe to an email there so you get advance notice before the next podcast. Now, let me give you a bit of context for our first reading this time. This is from a short story in which the narrator is flying to Chicago for a conference when there's an announcement from the pilot. There's a technical fault which means that the landing is not going to be routine. The steward has been calm and reassuring, but immediately before this passage, the narrator notices him briefing the passengers in the front row about what they should do if he himself, the steward that is, happens to be incapacitated. Watching him instruct them. In my eyes, they were suddenly elevated from being mere passengers to being his assistants or deputies, and I saw him already reduced to helplessness, dead or paralysed. Even if only in my imagination, the fatal crash was already imminent. At that point I realised that anything other than routine behaviour from a steward or stewardess would alarm me. Our lives might be almost over. This required an immediate reconciliation with the idea of death and it required an immediate decision as to the best way to leave this world. What should be my last thoughts on this earth, in this life? It was not a matter of looking for solace, but for acceptance. Some way of believing that it was all right to die now. First I said goodbye to certain people close to me. Then I had to have a larger thought, for the very end. And what I found to be the best thought was the thought that I was very small in this large universe. It was necessary to picture the large universe and all the galaxies and remember how very small I was. And then it would be all right that I should die now. Things were dying all the time. The universe was mysterious. Another ice age was coming anyway. Our civilization would disappear, so it was all right that I should die now. While I was thinking this large thought, my eyes were again shut. I was clasping my hands together until they were moist and I was bracing my feet very hard against the base of the seat in front of me. It wouldn't help to brace my feet if we had a fatal crash, but I had to take what little action I could. I had to assert my tiny amount of control 
In the midst of my fear, I still found it interesting that I thought I had to assert some control in an incontrollable situation. Then I gave up taking any action at all and observed another interesting thing about what was happening now inside me, that as long as I felt I had to take some action, I was anguished. And when I gave up all responsibility and stopped trying to do anything at all, I was relatively at peace. Even though the earth, meanwhile, was circling so far below us, and we were so high up in a defective airplane that would have trouble landing. Linda, I'm going to come to you first. Are you are you a nervous flyer? Oh yeah, very nervous flyer. And, and uh, so, did this piece capture anything about the nerves of flying for you? Well, not not really. No, um, I found it extraordinarily calm, forensic. Reminded me of doing mindfulness. Um, he said, "I still found it interesting." He said. Um, so you have this very man in a plane which he thinks is about to crash and determines that he has to have large thoughts on the plane, which is not my experience of being on a plane at all. And the only experience that he he um, he gives you is he you suddenly notice he has moist hands. But the detachment of it really drove me mad, and I have no idea who it is. I'll come back to that. Uh, you've assumed that it's um, well. You've assumed that it's a male narrator. Yes, I have which, done that, which, it, which sort of makes an assumption maybe about the writer too. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think um, there seems to be the detachment of it seems. Um, it's not observational at all. He's sort of looking around him, but there's no detail of anything that he sees. He, he, he the detachment of it is is one of the things I like about it. Actually. Ah, and I think it it's a, I think it does capture a well, at least one kind of psychological truth about extreme fear. Uh, or moments of fear, um, but we'll we'll come on to well, that. Sat in if that. I could point out yeah. that I was once on a plane in very extreme turbulence, and I grabbed the hand of the complete stranger who was sitting next to me. So this is, you know, a, 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 there's a vast gulf between this experience and mine. I was not thinking that, higher thoughts. Um, that was the little action you could take, I imagine, <laughs> <laughs> but entirely instinctive. Um, Satnam, are you a nervous flyer? No, I'm the complete opposite, actually. Um, I've been in a similar situation. And I actually think dying in a plane crash would be one of the best ways to go. Because it's instant. <laughs> it's all over very quickly. Plus, there's mass public sympathy, you know. So if I had You're to choose a way... You're not around for that. That's a poor consolation, the mass public sympathy. I suppose <laughs> the speed... Also, I don't know, it depends on what what altitude you're at. Um, that's the problem. I can pull a little bit of um, experiential rank here in that I once was on an aeroplane in which we were all told that there was a fault with the braking system and we would all have to adopt the crash position before landing. And it wasn't quite like this, but there were certainly elements in, in that, that compared to this. It's absolutely forensic in the way that it sort of sets out to think certain thoughts. First I did this, then I did this, then I thought this, while I was thinking this. Um, do you think, both of you, is it a representation of um, calm rationality in hindsight or do you think it is meant to represent the mentality of the person at the moment all of this is happening? I think the the 
the disjuncture between the moist hands and the large thoughts make, makes one think that he's very, very slightly poking fun at himself or herself. I'm not sure about that. I wasn't sure that I would take it completely at face value. There is a kind of comedy, isn't there, to the yes. to that paragraph, which begins, our lives might be almost over. Uh, and there are these interesting words that occur. This required an immediate reconciliation. Yeah. It required an immediate decision. Then later, then I had to have. And then later still, it was necessary. And That's all of right. these compulsions that come through that, you don't quite know who is doing the requiring. Except I think that it's the person, I assume it's the person themselves, uh, trying to compose themselves and coming up with a list of duties which they have to go through. Satnam, I don't know what you... Yeah, for, for me, it's obviously a passage about hurtling through the air towards the ground. But the narrator is doing the opposite. You know, he's going from the specific to the increasingly general. So we begin with a steward and suddenly he's talking about the universe, the galaxy... And then he does the same in terms of time. In, through history, he's talking about the future ice age, the end of civilization. So, and also the sentences are getting longer and longer. So I feel like what he's describing is going in the opposite direction to what's happening. I, I find that quite seductive, actually. I think, I think it's what you do. It's what I would do. You know, you try to put things into perspective. But at the same time, it is it is irretrievably comic, isn't it? Um, things were dying all the time. The universe was mysterious. Another ice age was coming anyway. Our civilization would disappear. So it was all right that I should die now. Um, none of those pre none of those accumulating arguments have any force at all against what the la the final clause is. It seems to me, no, and you're meant to find no. that funny. Yeah, I found I found the line. I said goodbye to certain people. Quite funny, because you wouldn't, would you? You'd think about your mother, your lover, your wife, whoever, right? But to say certain people is to take it too far, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> I hadn't noticed, you both used the word he. I'm going to tell you who this is now. This is from Lydia Davis's collection, ah. Can't and Won't. Um, well, I have never read. Oh, right. Well, why did you go, ah, Linda? That, um, that sounded the, like a revelation. Ah, um, uh, now it may, all makes sense, but the, obviously um, not. Possibly the reason I've never read her is because she has a reputation for this rather, rather kind of you know rationalising style, which doesn't particularly appeal to me. That might be it, the reason. Well, it's a very strange book, um, uh, Carlton. Won't I mean? It consists of tiny fragments of writing. Uh, this is one of the longer stories in it. And, and uh, I mean, I don't... Have you read her, um, Satnam? No, no. But is the narrator male? Well, I, you're never told. Oh. And my assumption is that the narrator is not male, but that I've only arrived at that because the writer is um, female. And so I transfer that. But there's nothing in the story to tell you one way or another. Um, who this writer is. What about this final sentence, final sentence, not of the story, but of this extract? As long as I felt I had to take some action, I was anguished. And when I gave up all responsibility and stopped trying to do anything at all, I was <laughs> relatively at peace, even though the earth, meanwhile, was circling so far below us and we were so high up in a defective airplane that would have trouble in landing. Um, the, I thought the Earth circling so far below us is an odd choice of words. Planes normally circle and the Earth stays still, but she's reversed it here. Yeah. I found the word airplane 
It's air yeah. hyphenated plane. Quite strange because normally you'd say aeroplane or airplane yeah. or plane. I yes. think that's a, I think that's a problem with technology actually, and it's a it's a particular problem with airplanes that that we haven't resolved in any way what we're to call them, and we're not resolved in what to call them in literary literary language. I thought it was um, deliberate, and she she was trying to highlight the vulnerability of the technology that you're flying. And on what air. about the the? I mean, the other thing that circling does is the other other thing. The Earth was circling so far below. So the other things that circle are sharks and predators, and I think there's a sort of hint of that in the fact that the Earth is doing the circling and not the plane. I had sort of wondering wondered if um, I now know she was feeling dizzy and um with the so sort of fear really was starting to take over this you know this this mind with its you know long lugubrious sentences but what the, the thing about um the earth circling be, below us i was the detachment it reminded me of what i now think of as bloody mindfulness it's a very kind of mindful passage. <laughs> it is, but I tell you Which what. Before... <laughs> it detaches from its own thoughts and observes its thoughts. Um, I think the word that sort of sets the tone for all of this passage is paralysed. I think um, yes. she is so terrified here, or this person is so terrified, their faculties of emotion have frozen. Yeah. And that all that is left is this ability to try and work out some sort of sense. I mean, before we move on, the end of this story is much more eccentric um, because the plane lands safely. I was thinking about the landing over my dinner that night in the orderly bustling ground floor restaurant of my hotel. I was looking into the face of a very small fried egg, a quail egg, on my plate, and it occurred to me that if the outcome had been different, the egg would, at this very moment, still have been looking up at someone, but at someone else, not me, the egg would have been looking up at a different fork, or even the same fork, but in a different hand. My hand would have been somewhere else, maybe in a Chicago morgue. It's much looser and stranger, the end of this story, than this particular passage. And I think she's sort of caught herself at a moment of, you know, the mind just going into overdrive to think of anything but what is actually happening. Yeah, and I guess I quite like that. And I think... One of the cliches when you in this situation is that you pray. And I think she almost gets it when she's talking about clasping her hands together until they moist, her eyes are shut. That's praying, isn't it? But she can't say that because that'd be a cliche. So, you know, it's a very beautiful way of putting it. OK, well, um, let's listen to the second extract now. Um, no context really needed for this because it's um, it's a poem from a collection which isn't particularly themed uh, and and the, the poem is in, entire in this reading. Speeding home from town in rainy dark. For the narrowness of main roads then, we were hurtling. A lorry on our tail, bouncing. Lit our mirrors, twin strawberries kept our lights down. And our highway lane was walled in froth-bark trees. Nowhere to swerve. But out between the trunks stepped an animal. Big neck, muzzle and horns, calmly gazing at the play of speed on counter-speed. Its front hooves up, planted on the asphalt, and our little room raced on to a beheading, 
or else to be swallowed by the truck's high bow. No dive down off my seat would get me low enough to escape the crane swing of that head and its imminence of butchery and glass. But it was gone. The monster jaw must have recoiled in one gulp to give me my survival. My brain was still full of the blubber lip, the dribbling cud. In all but reality, the bomb stroke had happened. Ghost glass and blurts of rain still showered out of my face at the man whose straining grip had had to refuse all swerving. Um, Satnam, do you want to go first on this one? Well, right, it's about... What, what, what about, strikes you first? Like, should I try to, in a very basic way, basic way, try to explain what I think is about? I think it's that, about that moment when you're driving on a road, animal steps in front of you, and you have that split second to decide whether you hit it or you swerve and take a risk with your own life. So it's about life and death, and all poetry is about life and death and sex. But poetry is also about poetry, and I feel like... This is a poem about writing. It's about looking death in the eye, but still keeping control. And when he talks about the straining grip, I think of that a pen. It's, it's about the act of being an artist, <laughs> about keeping your focus on something that's very difficult and trying to be rational about something that's instinctive. Am I talking complete crap? No, that was fantastic. So Having been no. writing only this morning, that's exactly what it feels like. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> trying. I could not take to it. Swerve. I could take it further because go on. He, he calls the inside of the car a room, and of course, that's right, the little room. Yes, yeah. And a stanza is, of course, it means room, doesn't it? In Italian, yeah. Um... So you could take it further. Um, I hadn't seen that thing about it being a poem about writing. But I'd underlined that our little room raced on to a beheading because it seems to me that is, you know, it's not just about being in a car, is it? It's about, you know, the the small space of your own existence. Um, just as in that large last passage, uh, the moments of intense danger suddenly make you feel kind of small and vulnerable. Uh, and we are all, you know, in our way, racing on to a beheading. Um, I don't want to sound too <laughs> thought for the day about it, but... I think that's what that line does. Um, Linda Grant, what did you think? I love this poem and I'm uh, keen to know who, who it was by. Um, the, oh, right, you phrase... don't know who it's by then. No, I don't. No. Well, um... if you loved this one, you will love the rest. Right. it's quite representative. Okay. Um, so hopefully... What I'm did you love find... about it? Um... <laughs> I don't drive... Um, but I could be a passenger and I would be um, pressing my, 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 my feet against the, um, the, the well of the car and trying to get it, trying to control the car in some way which was not possible for me. The phrase, the little room, is the one that jumped out at me. And I really liked the twin strawberries, the reflections of the, um, the, the, trucks lights um on the windows on the mirrors rather it's a gorgeous I think, image i think that must be the car in front yes presumably um and the lorry he's got a lorry on his tail which is lighting up his mirrors oh he's right got a car in front so he's stuck between two pieces of tra you know i mean that's part of the right the dilemma for the driver um, Satnam, you are a driver, I know, an enthusiastic driver. I think you are, are you Tom. Any... I know you're into F1, aren't you? Well, yeah, but that's only like kind of observational. And that's sort of, 
And that's because, in a way, I find it so boring that I find it very soothing to watch. Well, I find driving <laughs> incredibly soothing. I find, I think I like driving because it's the opposite of writing, you know, in that you're out in the physical world, you can't take notes. Um, but what I love about this poem is, is the way it puts driving into perspective. You've got the diction, you've got the very mechanical diction to talk about the light, the truck, the crane swing, the glass and the lorry, but then you've got very animalistic words like muzzle, horns, dribbling, cud, and blubber lip. And it just reminds you of how vulnerable you are when you're driving. You are flesh and blood in this tin cage, you know, and it could all come together very quickly, couldn't it? Yeah, no, things happen very, very fast, don't they? I mean, if you've ever sort of been in a collision of any kind, they do happen faster than you can think about them. Uh, the bit I really love about this poem is um, is towards the end when you get... Um, I mean, there are these two interesting buts, you know, it's a very simple description of the opening. Um, our highway lane was walled in frothbark trees, nowhere to swerve. But out between trunks, but introduces this sudden change in circumstances. And then it's echoed. Um, no dive down off my seat would get me low enough to escape the crane swing of that head and its imminence of butchery and glass. But it was gone. And so the butt then reverses, everything's disappeared. Um, and what follows, you get the animal is still there in his head. The monster jaw must have recoiled in one gulp to give me my survival. My brain was still full of the blubber lip, the dribbling cud. And though those um, phrases, the blubber lip and the dribbling cud, seem to me both to refer to the animal and, and then what the animal, what this experience has done to him. Yes. It's wonderfully on a massive pig, that, isn't it? The blubber lip and the dribbling cud is that absolute quivering sense of what might have happened. That was uh, exactly his, what his I took from to it. Being an animal. Sorry. The, the, the blubber lip was actually, I thought, the first time I read it, I thought he's burst into tears. <laughs> and it is. I mean, gram yeah, grammatically, it could crying. be referring to this large horned beast oh yes absolutely i had to read it two or three times before i realized it seemed to be doing both and why do you think he chooses um in that line in all but reality the bomb stroke had still happened um stroke is an odd word um bombs conventionally blast yes. uh, you can talk about a, a bomb strike uh, more conventionally but bomb stroke is a slightly odd word yeah i think for me that bit of the poem I mean, the whole thing, the whole structure of the poem echoes the heart-stopping experience. You know what it's like. You have a sudden bit of danger on the road. Your heart skips a beat. It takes a while to recover. And the poem works in the same way because you've got a very, you know, four-line structure, five-line structure for three stanzas. And suddenly it all falls apart around there. And it takes... It, it takes, does, yeah. It takes time to get back to normal. It doesn't actually get back to normal. Um, I'm going to tell you who this poem is by it's by and I think it kind of explains some of the sort of blokiness of the opening of this poem which is very very matter of fact it's Le um, Les Murray the Australian poet oh, um, right. uh, and it's uh, you know it's um, let me find the uh, title of it high speed trap space it's called oh yeah uh, from his col collection uh, waiting for the past um and it does have that, you know, it starts with this sort of very blokey, kind of slightly nostalgic, you know, the narrowness of the main roads then. He's obviously thinking back on something. But then his ability, Les Murray, to, 
I just do wonderful things with language, you know, uh, while remaining completely uh, demotic. I mean, he doesn't use, a, he sometimes uses, an, uh, you know, an extraordinary vocabulary, but most he's using very plain words in very kind of plain grammar. Are all the poems about driving too. and cars? No, a lot of them are about cutting stumps or right. dealing with farm animals because he had a farm in, I think it was New South Wales, you know, and he would, you know, if you ever see pictures of Les Murray, he is, he would have been driving a ute, you know, <laughs> with a pair of shorts on um, and some very dirty boots. Um, okay, <laughs> let's listen to extract three. Matthew now found that he was present at the fire merely in excerpts with long blank intervals in between. One moment he would be holding the branch with someone else and trying to shield himself from the intense heat. The next he would be slumped on the riverbank, trying to explain to Erendorf how simple it would be for human beings to use cooperation instead of self-interest as the basis of all their behaviour. So many people already do, he exclaimed. But Erendorf, who was not as accustomed to firefighting as Matthew, looked too distressed to reply. If you looked at teachers and nurses and all sorts of ordinary people, to whom, incidentally, society granted a rather reluctant and condescending respect, there were already many people whose greatest ambition was the welfare of others. Why should this not be extended to every walk of life? Ah, just you wait a moment, he protested, for Erendorf was opening and closing his mouth like a goldfish. I know that you want to say that such people, too, are motivated by self-interest, but that they get their satisfaction in a different way. That is merely a psychological quibble. There's all the difference in the world between someone who gets his satisfaction from helping others instead of helping himself. Can you imagine how tremendous life would be? Look at all these men at the fire. They'd do anything for each other, though some of them don't even speak the same bloody language. But perhaps Matthew, instead of saying all this, had merely thought it. Because when Erendorf at last managed to reply, his words did not seem to make any sense. Erendorf, in case he should not survive, was urgently trying to pass on to Matthew his great discovery. Erendorf's second law, that everything in human affairs is slightly worse at any given moment than at any preceding moment. It was very important that this should be more widely known. Say it again. Erendorf did so. What? But it's not true. Yes, it is, if you think about it. Well, let me see. Certainly things seem to be getting worse for us in Singapore, but not for the Japanese. Yes, they are getting worse for the Japanese. It only seems that they are not, because things keep happening which don't do anybody any good. Yes, but still, there are lots of things... Before Matthew could finish what he was saying, however... He found himself back at the fire and feeling dreadfully exhausted. He inspected the person behind him, planning to give him a piece of his mind if it turned out to be Erendorf. It was ridiculous that a man of his intelligence and culture should not be able to see how important it was that a vast universal change of heart should take place. It was the only answer. Um, now, Linda, um, you kind of hinted to me before we started recording that you'd recognize one of these pieces i'm assuming this might yes. it must be this one yes. since you you didn't recognize the it. others yeah don't say what it is just yet but anyway what were your thoughts on this what a great piece 
um, and how very different from the first. I mean, all three pieces that we're presented with are about people in extreme difficult situations. And um, this has all the immediacy and, uh, and felt terror at the same time as trying to think of, trying to explain a big idea um, as a way of sort of pushing back at the situation that you're in and becoming increasingly hysterical and, 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 and insistent that the person he's talking to, Aaron Dorf, get, take, get, takes this idea on board because anything is better than having to um, deal with this horrible situation he's in of fighting a fire. Um, yeah, the, I mean, I should say for those who, who uh, have just heard this piece that the context for it is that the man has been, all of the men in this have been fighting this fire for hours and hours and hours. They are sort of exhausted and they're making no progress, if any progress at all. Um, so they, this passage is about people in a state of extreme exhaustion uh, and almost delirium, I think. I mean, that becomes clear. Um, Satnam, what did you think? Yeah, I read it as an excerpt that, describe the difficulty and impossibility of human communication because you know some of the dialogue is in quotation marks some of it isn't some of it is implied some is reported you can't quite tell if the words are being spoken and actually he says at one point instead of saying this maybe he had merely thought it and as well as being about firefighting I think it's about the difficulty of you know relating to your fellow man um, I, it's a very good point that because which I hadn't noticed, even though I've read it several times over, um, that some of it is quoted speech and some of it isn't, and it, it fades in from a reported fact into a possible hallucination um, all the time, and it goes backwards and, and forwards. But I thought it had quite a lot of kinship with that first piece because it's another example of this of the brain in this, these extreme circumstances, or perhaps the mind, I should say, rather than the brain, the mind attempting to sort of find some kind of meaning, you know, conscious that they're in extremis and clinging on to this idea that the world, which clearly is chaotic and falling apart, does have some meaning in it, if only people could be got to see what that was. I was really struck by the use in the first line of the word excerpt. It's a very literary word, very literary way of describing firefighting, you know. Merely in excerpts, yeah. He does some very strange things. I mean, I've given away, it's a, it's a male writer, this. He does some very strange things. The, the fire itself is characterised and appears as a character um, rather and turns up mischievously and starts sort of saying things and adding thoughts. Um, but you're absolutely right, it's... It, it, it is literary in its own sense. It has this odd cliche in it. I Just you wait a moment, he protested. For Erendorf was opening and closing his mouth like a goldfish. Yes. That's not a great, that's a cliche, isn't it? It's, it's, not, a, it's not a great it image. Is. But I did think it's sort of almost better to have a cliche at that moment than something very literary. I thought it was a deliberate way of bringing a water image into a fire. And it, you... You're less likely to see a goldfish at a fire than anywhere else. <laughs> yeah, and and presumably it is the per place at which a goldfish would be most likely to gasp <laughs> as well. <laughs> as well. Um, this, uh, it seems to me, is comic in in all the right ways. 
you know, it recognises the futility of human attempts to come to terms with things. And I do think that final line, it was ridiculous that a man of his intelligence and culture should not be able to see how important it was that a vast universal change of heart should take place. It was the only answer. Uh, it, you have this sense of these, both of these men absolutely in the grip of their E-Day feeks while they're fighting this fight, <laughs> trying to persuade each other that actually the other one is wrong and that his own little simple solution is the answer to everything, including the fire, one assumes. Um, this comes from J.G. Farrell's novel, The Singapore Grip, Oh, uh, about the Japanese, uh, the fall of Singapore during the Second World War to the Japanese. And the Japanese have just bombed. And, and all of these are the, the warehouses and go-downs along the Singapore waterfront that have gone up in flames. And with them are going up in flames uh, the entire colonial enterprise uh, that the novel also talks about and Matthew is very sceptical throughout uh, about the nature of the world and very you know he's a he's a heretic in terms of the people he's staying with in the sense that thinking that uh, the empire is over um is it a novel you like um Linda um I haven't read it I saw the oh, well, see, so you just recognize the names. <laughs> <laughs> um, well I I Japan, yeah. so Empire of the Sun, Singapore Grip, it's right. one of those so, two. <laughs> um, I wasn't mad about the adaptation, but actually reading this, I now want to read I'm, the novel. I know, I know you admire um, The Siege of Krishnapur. I think you admire The Siege of Krishnapur. Is that right, Satnam? Yeah, yeah, great novel. He died, he died very young, didn't he? He was such a talent. He did, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, okay. Well, thank you very much indeed. I, my last question to you, I think, is have either of you ever been in a situation like this? Firefighting? No. Yeah. A, a moment either, you know, a near miss. Um, yes. What's your yes. nearest miss? Um, I prevented an attempted murder. I mean, I, I, it was a, an attempted murder, not a murder because of my intervention. It's me. Well, that's. <laughs> and when the rampaging attempted murderer was running around the house, I managed to call 999. Well, it was actually 911 because this was in Vancouver. And she said, if you call the police, I'll kill you. She was in the background, but you can help him if you want. And so when the, the emergency services came on the line, I said, I'd like an ambulance. What for? person has cut themselves where in the back a stabbing yes should we send the police yes definitely <laughs> very calm and i collapsed oh, but that's interesting you had you had exactly what that um, first passage contained which is the ability to think calmly <laughs> and rationally because I could what... do something I, I, I was in a position to do something I wasn't um, passive you know, there was something that I could actually do. Rather than just brace your yes. feet against the seat yes. in front of you. I, I did like that detail of bracing. I mean, you said it exactly, um, talking about the poem, um, that the fallacy that we all have, uh, that we can prevent the world from um, impacting with us just by stiffening our bodies, um, which that first reading gets. And, and you know, 
every passenger has done it in a car, haven't they? You know, when you think you're going too far, you sort of push out your feet as though you can push yourself away from the source of danger. Satnam, have you ever had a near miss? Yeah, I, I nearly killed myself and my best friends on their wedding day because uh, I used to uh, test drive posh cars. I arranged to have a Bentley that weekend. I drove them from the church to the party, got rather excited and nearly had a head-on collision on a country lane. But mm. no contact. But afterwards, I had to lie down on the floor. It would have been terrible, to, A, to kill someone, but on their <laughs> wedding day... Um, I did not know that when I picked that second poem, so uh, that second reading. So that is just a moment of serendipity. OK, well, I can't match either of those. I mean, I, as I say, I was on a plane that we all had to adopt um, the uh, emergency brace position on. And my only note on that is that people, what people do is, first of all, they make lots of jokes. Um, they make, you know, they all joke and they turn, you turn to complete strangers and make jokes to them and and there's a lot of black humor and then as you get closer to the moment where you actually have to put your head on your arms and on your seat tray and you know loosen your clothes and all of the stuff that you're supposed to do everything goes very 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 quiet indeed I've never landed in a quieter plane and it was fine obviously because here I am but <laughs> but if you're writing a a a potential air crash situation you have to get in the fact that people tell jokes mm. as well anyway um thank you very much indeed both of you for doing that thank you i enjoyed it i hope you enjoyed it very much <laughs> My thanks again to Linda Grant and Satham Sangera. Do leave a review if you enjoyed this podcast and subscribe, of course, if you don't want to miss the next one, which will have a slight twist to it. Instead of me choosing all three extracts, my guests will each choose a passage. Our theme next time is food, and I'm delighted to say that joining me to talk about the pieces they've picked for close inspection are the writer and broadcaster Nigella Lawson and the novelist Aminata Fauna. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.